Welcome to the Mind Over Matter podcast. We are based at the Graduate School of Systemic Neurosciences in Munich. This is a neuroscience podcast exploring the influences that have shaped the scientific approach and career trajectory of the brightest minds in neuroscience today. Today's episode features Professor Catherine Jeffrey from the University College London. patriarch, let's say, of the memory field and then the postdoc with the patriarch of the navigation field. <laughs> how would you say this um, heritage has influenced how you view the problems in your research now? Ah, that's a, a good question. So, I, in fact, my, my lineage extends um, before that to my master's training where I worked with Cliff Abraham in New Zealand and Um, learned about synaptic plasticity and the synaptic plasticity model of memory. Um, and then I went to work with Richard Morris for my PhD, and he was applying this model, and, and um, in fact, he was one of the big architects of it. Um, and then I learned about behavioral manipulations and so on. So, so I kind of started my research very strongly influenced by Uh, things like heavy in learning and the role of the hippocampus and the role of um, rapid synaptic plasticity in um, learning about the environment, was introduced to the idea of the cognitive map and map-based learning. And so I think I got a lot of that from Richard Morris and also learned a lot about experimental design. He is one of the most skilled scientists I know in experimental design, like really testing hypotheses of... Um, lots of control conditions and really isolating the problem so that, that was really good for my training and then I became uh, more interested in the neural coding aspect like the content of the representations rather than the mechanism of their formation so I went to work with John O'Keefe and of course you know, he is the architect of the whole cognitive map theory of, of spatial learning and learned about place cells, but also learned about a way of thinking about problems that situates the problem within the biology of the animal. Like what is the, the um, what problem is the animal needing to solve and how is its brain structure trying to help solve it? And so I've carried those things on through, I think, this the importance of experimental design, the importance of um, the mechanisms of memory and the importance of the uh, ethology and biology of the animal. So I think that's really shaped how I think about things now. And then when you founded the Institute of Behavioral Neuroscience, what do you think are the distinct advantages of having those PIs from different, slightly different disciplines under one roof rather than having them collaborate from their own distinct corners? It's really great to have people working together who have similar but not completely overlapping interests. And I think we've really benefited from that. So we're all interested um, in the neural um, coding that underlies behavior, I guess. So that's why we're in a psychology department. And it's nice that we have each other because, <laughs> you know, psychology tends to be um, not always very biologically oriented. So it's, it's nice to have biological colleagues, but at the same time, we also have a lot of psychology colleagues. 
And I think because we share our, our social space and our lab space, that means that we interact a lot, and particularly our students and postdocs interact a lot. So they have lunch together every day, and um, they share offices and things. So they're um, getting exposure to the different ways of looking at similar problems. And as PIs, we've developed a lot of collaborations, so we have quite a few shared grants going on between the five of us. And so it's, it's been a really nice collegial atmosphere. We all get on really well as well, so it's a, it's a nice, sociable environment. So it's been great. How did you go about selecting your fellow co-directors or the collaborators within the Institute? Because the UCL has a wide range of neuroscientists working on many different topics yeah um it just grew organically really <laughs> so we started off as a small number of people and then some people left and then um, we had positions to advertise and people applied and you know we slowly over the years it took a few years to build up to five and that's now the maximum that, that our little small space can hold <laughs> um But yeah, it was it was really organic. It wasn't we didn't start out with a plan other than that we wanted people who were working in that interface of, of neurobiology and behavior. And this is still a mystery to me how you managed to do all of this, but you have done quite a bit of public outreach. You write a blog, you use Twitter actively, you give talks to all sorts of public organizations, to museums even, mm -hmm. to school groups as I've seen and I was wondering whether you have encountered something during these experiences that has influenced how you think about your research. So have you brought something outside the university walls inside the lab? That's a good question. So yeah I think I have. So um, I do a lot of public um, speaking Um, whenever I'm invited I always say yes and I really love it because people are so fascinated by this whole thing and I always get people coming up afterwards telling me their stories about you know um, navigation failures <laughs> or you know how you know they, they, they and their spouse kind of approach problems differently you know, all sorts of anecdotes and things and I think it's um, made me a lot more um, human focused than otherwise I might be so although I work on animal models That has brought to the fore the, the ultimate reason that this is interesting, which is how it helps you know, us understand ourselves a bit better. And so in recent years, I've started to move my research a little bit in that direction as well, started thinking about how to take what we've been learning from animals out into the big wide world to inform um, human activities. So things like um, designing buildings for humans to navigate in train stations and you know, conference centers. And, things like that, and talking to architects and designers and, and so on. So it's really really just kind of made me engage with the real world, which has been quite good. So is it all on a smaller scale or also in terms of urban planning? Because I think if anything can use a bit of improvement in helping navigating, it's in an urban environment. Yeah. Um, yes, so... So some of the people that I've talked to um, are engaged in more urban level kind of planning. So I've actually formed a special interest group, um, which I've called Cognitive Navigation, <laughs> But which is basically, um, it's, it's a branch within the Royal Institute of Navigation that focuses on 
um, navigation by thinking agents as opposed to navigation using satellites or, or whatever. And we're trying to get a community of people who work at, at different levels on this problem. So um, urban planners and architects, engineers, signage designers, um, academic psychologists, academic neurobiologists, like every, everyone we can find basically who's interested in navigation, we're trying to get them all together. Um, and yes, I think designing buildings is important, but you're right, designing cities as a whole is also important, and we don't really think about that. We don't think about making things navigable. We think about making them you know, nice to look at or whatever, functional, but we don't really think about navigation. And I feel that we should be, because I think if a, if a space is easy to navigate, then you feel better in that space, less stressed and less anxious. And so I think we should be um, thinking about, about those types of things. But do you see a possibility of uh, an opposite solution of people relying more and more on their GPS devices and then there is a huge movement for developing apps for indoor navigation mm, now? Yeah. So I wonder whether it would be more the human-like route of adapting the environment to our needs or we will just uh, use technical prosthesis and, and <laughs> basically atrophy our navigations and well I, I would like to think I mean I'm a big fan of handheld navigation apps as well I, I use Google Maps all the time on my phone and, and wouldn't be without it but especially for an environment that you don't know because otherwise you are you know resorting to flicking through pages on a paper map or, or asking people and feeling completely lost but I, I think it should be possible to um, bring those things together, so to make a world which is easy to learn about, but also to have, have technology to help you learn about it and to get you through it when it's, when it's not familiar. So I would like to think that those two things don't have to work against each other but, but or end up with a sort of integrated technology. I also think it's going to be really exciting how we develop um, um, things like augmented reality so that your, your apps work in harmony with your um, your own senses, and, and instead of as an alternative to them. So this is the technical branch, as it were, of your outward-facing activity. But there is also a creative branch. So you've participated in collaborations with theatre directors, with uh, artists. Have you brought something from your scientific background into the art practice, or have you learned something from the artists that? maybe changed how you approach problems or have or are you buying into the idea of art and science being in a productive dialogue or do you think it's really different ways of thinking that can be brought together but they really require switching and acceptance of the rules of the game in each domain that's an interesting a difficult question. <laughs> so I, um, I've very much enjoyed working with artists, and in fact I've started doing some art of my own, and it's really interesting in, to find that in some ways it's a very different enterprise. It, it requires a, um, a loosening of the rules that normally govern your thinking. So when you're thinking scientifically about a problem, 
you want to break that problem down into its component parts and their logical relations and and it's it can be sort of quite a destructive process in some ways <laughs> and and it's a very organized process whereas artistic thinking seems to require in some ways letting go of the rules and letting your brain wander around the kind of um, mental space of possibilities in, in a less constrained kind of way if if you like. And I found it slightly disorienting to engage with people who do that all the time. <laughs> and I mean, in a really interesting way. But sometimes I get frustrated because um, the artist's way of looking at things often seems to be insufficiently grounded in reality for me. So as a scientist, I believe there's an underlying reality, whereas artists are all about the um, human subjective experience. So I've had to learn these two ways of looking at things. But ultimately, I think we're all interested in the human mind. And so I think those two facets um, are two sides of the same coin in a way, like our subjective experience and the boundless possibilities of that, but the mechanics of how that experience comes about. I think they're two sides of the same coin. And I, so I think they can work together. I think artists and scientists really could work together really productively but they do need to learn to speak each other's language or at least to understand that there are <laughs> these two languages. But I'm finding, I'm really enjoying it a lot and I, I hope to do a lot more of that type of thing. And do you think that is something that is more easily done when one is at the more advanced stage of one's career, when there is more time, more confidence in one's own abilities or would you encourage more junior people to try and venture into whole other domains of knowledge as early as they can? Yeah, the latter, I think. I, I think there's never, there's never a time when you can't benefit from um, exploring these other domains. And I think, you know, I, I painted a slightly grim picture of scientific thinking, but actually I think a lot of, there is a lot of creativity in, um, in scientific thinking as well. Because although we are trying to ultimately ground ourselves in reality, how you problem solve an experiment often requires quite a lot of creative thinking and I think if you're exposed to that right from the beginning you learn to let your mind kind of go a little bit <laughs> um, and to explore other possibilities and just to enjoy the aesthetics of creative thought yeah I think I think it's never too soon to start that it is it is always difficult to find time for all of this stuff but on the other hand you know you can get very tired when you're at work all day and and art can be a um, a very invigorating kind of relaxing thing to do so yeah I, I would totally encourage it now I guess a little bit inspired by the content of the conversation this is a an entirely awkward segue but I'm just now thinking about you doing the PhD in LGP and now would you say that when you are completely removed from a certain subfield for a rather long time but you remain in the broader field and you accumulate experience, is it easier to think about the function of certain mechanisms like LGP or certain phenomena uh, more broadly and maybe more freely when you're not entwined in the minutiae of the subfield? So, so would you say that now you are able to see LGP in a more comprehensive manner than when you were working on it very closely? Um, 
that's quite hard to answer because um, because in those intervening years, I, it's true that I've stepped back from that field, but I've also just gained more knowledge, which includes more knowledge about LTP mm. and the different types of plasticity. And also new discoveries have been made, so there is more knowledge to be had. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so it's hard to say whether I've developed a, um, a bigger picture view as a, as a sort of a, um, a side effect of not being immersed mm-hmm. in it. Um, also, there's a sort of personality thing involved. I, I am kind of a big picture person, and I do like to step back from things and see how they fit into the bigger picture. So I've always liked looking at the functions, for example, of the different types of plasticity, where as some people like to drill down into the mechanisms and they'll end up spending all of their research efforts trying to unpick the amperoreceptor subunits or something like that. So I, so I think different people go into different directions. And for me, I, like I, I'm really pleased I started out in LTP because it's given me this foundation for understanding the physiology that is very valuable. But at the same time, I'm also quite liking working at this sort of interface between the neural processes and the behaviour and, and the thought that an animal is engaging in and all of that type of stuff. That's the level I quite like to be at. So then how would you answer the question in the title of one of your earlier papers, the LTP, the mechanism without function? What is the function? <laughs> mechanism without function, yeah. Um, I, so it's interesting. We, we just assume now that LTP is... Um, the mechanism for memory. I don't think there would be many neuroscientists who would question that. And yet, we still haven't really proved it. (laughs) But I think it's uh, far and away the most plausible hypothesis for how memories um, are formed, at least in the initial stages. But it it does sometimes weigh on me that we still don't really know for sure um, that that's what it's for. and that that's how memories are formed. So I think it still remains an interesting mechanism, and I, st- I think we haven't fully yet answered the question of its function. So Do you see any groups working on LTP now that are taking the direction that you would support as the most likely to either confirm or disconfirm its role in memory? Um, I'm not sure if I could single out specific groups necessarily, but I do think new techniques are coming along that are enabling us to um, perform these very sort of selective manipulations that weren't possible. So there was a a very um, influential paper by Carol Barnes that I read a long, long time ago, back in the 90s. Um, And it was, I forget the exact title, but it was something like um, Ali. LTP, are we searching under the streetlight? <laughs> Meaning, are we doing the kinds of experiments to test this hypothesis that we can do, because mm-hmm. that's all we can do kind of thing. Um, and it laid out, this, this paper laid out, in theory, what you would, the types of experiments you would need to do to prove the theory. And it involved things that at the time were really impossible, like um, isolating um, a memory engram within a mm-hmm. circuit, and then selectively you know, manipulating the, the molecules along the way. And, and you know, it was just like... Was, it was a wish list. Of, but now, in the meantime, um, the mechanisms have come along to do that, like with the genetic manipulations, mm-hmm. targeted genetic manipulations, 
uh, and optogenetics and things like that. And we can do these incredibly focused interventions that we couldn't before. So I think um, that's going to be the way that we finally do it. But there's still a lot of questions we haven't yet answered, like where are, where are the engrams? We think we're starting to develop some insights, but we haven't really localised them properly in the brain yet. So until we do that, it, it, it's hard to do the mechanistic interventions and, and to prove the hypothesis. And anyway, memory is a bit of a slip, slippery thing because you know, there's, it, it's, it's probably not one single trace in the brain, and it for sure evolves over time, and maybe it moves over time, or you know, who knows? So we don't quite know what we're looking for <laughs> or where. So um, it's, it's not, I think it's not going to be easy to prove um, that LTP is a mechanism. Mm. But at the same time, I would be really surprised if it wasn't a mechanism in at least part of, part of its life cycle. Well, it, it sounds like uh, Tony Gavilab just just took that wish list and, and started ticking off the boxes. Yeah, that, yeah, so. yeah, and that's exactly the approach I think that's needed, and, and it's just amazing the, the stuff that has come out of that lab. And so we can just sit yeah. back and wait for MIT to solve the memory problem. <laughs> I guess I think it's going to be a planet-wide <laughs> solution. I just hope it happens in my lifetime. You know, it would be be nice to see the loop close. You know, um, while I'm still here. But, uh, and now I'd like to ask three questions that I ask everyone um, who is a guest. The first is, is there any skill or skills that you wish you have acquired earlier on in your career? Oh. Uh, um, uh, let me think. There are so many I wish I had. <laughs> I probably, I wish I had learned to... Um, program computers earlier. <laughs> um, so I came to MATLAB and things quite late. And I can sort of MATLAB a little, but it doesn't come easily to me. And I think in retrospect, maybe I, maybe I could have engaged with that earlier. Um, especially because um, part of me would love to be doing modelling. And we were talking about this mm -hmm. earlier, uh, modelling and experiments. Um, fit together so well but it's really hard to do both uh, so if I could go back and, and encourage my younger mm -hmm. self I'd say get your teeth into that a bit more um, uh, what other things there, there are many sort of generic skills that probably I was sort of slow to acquire like knowing when to give up on an experiment that's not really going anywhere <laughs> there are things that you just learn just by you know um, doing things the hard way um, and probably in terms of establishing a career, in retrospect, I probably, if I could go back to my younger self, I would say try harder to get more funding earlier on than I did. Mm. So, mind you, I had quite small babies when I started my, my lectureship, so there wasn't a lot of time for grant writing. Um, in retrospect, I, I've seen... Um, some people who, who really start out getting as much money as they can, like big five-year grants um, with two or three postdocs on them, and that really gives them a huge propulsion. Um, and I think if it's possible to do that, uh, I, I would really recommend it, so going for a fellowship or something like that instead of the smaller project grants and so on. So in retrospect, that's something I might have done differently. Uh, but otherwise, you know, a lot of stuff you just learn, you learn by experience, and it's 
you just have to live live through it i think <laughs> and what is the most viable or successful theory in neuroscience today in your opinion oh um Oh, that's that's very hard to answer. Do you mean in cognitive neuroscience or whatever you prefer? Um, <laughs> you know, the I think I think probably um, the electrochemical basis of synaptic transmissions is probably well, some pretty well watching country models, so yeah, you, you can yeah, go for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, but you know, in a, in a more um, at a more cognitive level. I would well probably probably I would say the synaptic plasticity mm. model of memory. I don't like I say it's it's not proved yet, but I think it's probably the most successful at least scaffold model that we have. Um, it's one that I would be really surprised to see overturned, but who knows? You know. Um, yeah. And as a counterpart to that, what is the most exciting piece of data from your lab or from any other lab that you've encountered recently? Um, that's also hard to answer because there are so many things but something that I think is quite interesting that's come along the last few years is the increasing evidence for the role um, of the hippocampus in um, time as well as space or the etrile hippocampal system, indeed, in time as well as space. Um, that, to me, is quite exciting, because I think time is a fundamental part of our conscious awareness and our um, thinking um, and our memories, and you know, it's the natural counterpart to space. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how that story unfolds. I'd put my money on that, I think. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for listening.